there, folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast, brought to you, among others, by our sponsor, Hiroshi Shimizu. Shimizu-san is an immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener, and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and consultation related to these topics. So feel free to reach out to Shimizu-san on info at h for hiroshi dash or hyphen shimizu dash office dot com or just pick up the phone give him a call zero nine two seven three two double seven double five from within japan or if you're calling from overseas just drop that zero and add a plus eight one which is japan's country code nine two seven three two double seven double five now, for today's episode, I've just had the pleasure of being interviewed for a great little podcast called The Eccentric CEO. Now, I'm not really the CEO of our company. That'll be my partner, Chikako, and I don't know if I could really be considered uh, eccentric. Probably quite boring, actually, but nevertheless, the host of the podcast, Aman Agarwal, asked me if I could come and speak to him and his listeners about our company and about Japan's real estate property market. Now, Aman is the founder and CEO of Samtam Transnational, which is an executive education company. So he's an educator, speaker, and as mentioned, host of the Eccentric CEO podcast, which is a show that deep dives into different businesses and industries from the perspective of a global entrepreneur or investor. So we had a nice long chat about all things related to the market here, how it differs from other markets around the world. We had a look at the macro aspects, market fundamentals, various sectors, the aging population, the generally deflationary or stagnant uh, economic environment, and obviously the differences or challenges that are involved in doing business here, as far as international or foreign investors are concerned. But we also drilled down into the nitty-gritty micro details like locations, rental income, uh, cash flow, prices, yields the effect of COVID on various segments of the market, and much, much more. So, well-rounded conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Oh, and if you're interested in seeing our faces as we speak as well, we've got a video of the conversation for you too. So, feel free to hop over to our YouTube channel. We'll link to the video in this episode's show notes for you. So, here it is, yours truly on the Eccentric CEO podcast. Enjoy, and I shall see you again on the other side. everybody welcome to another episode of the eccentric ceo podcast and today i have another special guest ziv nakajima magen and he and i are going to talk about the real estate landscape in japan especially how international investors can buy or sell real estate in japan um, and once again this is because the japanese real estate industry is often very What's the right word? Uh, counterintuitive, I think, is what you're looking for. Yeah, counterintuitive to most real estate investors elsewhere. And so Ziv and I are going to chat about the intricacies of you know, how you buy real estate in Japan, what really goes on, and why people do consider Japan. Ziv, thank you so much for coming here. Pleasure, man. Good to be on. So 
let's start with the 5000 feet overview what's different about the japanese real estate market well like we said before counterintuitive is probably the right word um so the basics are probably the same right you buy property and you lease it out and hopefully you collect a, a rental check every month and then if and when you're in the mood to exit you sell it mm-hmm. so the, those basics are pretty much the same but the um the market fundamentals are a bit different here so I suppose on the one hand, in many parts of the world, if you're purchasing real estate, it could be a speculative purchase. You're purchasing and you're hoping for value to go up. Um, Here, I mean, the value has gone up between 2012 to 2017 or so, but that's on the back of um, a good two and a half decades of deflation. So it's definitely Mm -hmm. not a given that value will continue to go up. Uh, When it does, Mm -hmm. generally does so in big cities, um, occasionally there's a new city that pops up that also has uh, good fundamentals, but basically people don't invent, uh, invest here for capital growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so the factors that attract people to this market are different. It's um, mostly cash flow oriented mm-hmm. and it's, um, it's mostly hassle free cash flow market. So here, even if you're purchasing properties in uh, let's say the cash cows, which are the smaller, older studio or one bedroom apartments, which are the ones that tend to generate the highest uh, yield because they're mm-hmm. quite cheap to buy and the rental income compared to the price is quite high. Yeah. Um, but even if you're buying in these um, lower brackets, which would mean that you've got lower income tenants, um, yeah. there are no uh, ghettos or deadbeat tenants. Uh, people don't mm-hmm. squat in a unit. If you need to evict yep. someone, you just send them a letter and off they go kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing I suppose that is a bit maybe I don't know if opposite but different to other countries is that um, you know how if you go to other countries even in Asia if you go to uh, big cities in China or you go to the Philippines or you go to Vietnam there's usually um, quite a few English speaking realtors who are very very happy to work with foreign investors Yep. Um, and you're perceived as um, in many cases you're perceived as a the rich and sometimes gullible foreigner who comes to this foreign country. And um, it's kind of a challenge to find the ones that are um, honest and reliable. So there's a lot of people who speak English at you and want to work with you, but you have to work hard to find the reliable ones. Yeah. Um, So from that aspect, it's the exact opposite here. So everyone is professional and by the book and everything's got a paper trail a mile long and um, nobody's going to swindle you or, or take your money or anything of that sort. But it's mm-hmm. very difficult to actually find somebody who will agree to work with foreigners. So mm. there's, a, there's a huge language and a culture gap mm-hmm. um, that requires some bridging. I mean, in central Tokyo and in some of the more popular um, ski villages or near the U.S. Army bases. So there are a few spots in Japan where you could find English-speaking realtors and uh, property managers to work with. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the country, the places that are not that internationally accessible and not that well known to foreigners just don't cater to foreigners at all. And it's it's a bit of a conundrum because that's where the more attractive deals usually are. Right. So um, mm-hmm. central Tokyo or central Osaka are probably similar to uh, central New York or Miami or Los Angeles in the sense that uh, prices mm-hmm. are quite high and yields are quite compressed. Yep. As soon as you get out into um, some of the secondary cities and some of the prefectural capitals, places that are not as well known internationally, then 
prices are very low and yields are, are quite high. So it is more attractive to work in these areas, but then you, it's very difficult to find somebody that you can actually work with uh, on a regular basis. They can't, um, most of them can't wrap their heads around receiving funds from overseas or sending funds overseas. Um, mm-hmm. They're terrified of the fact that they might have to speak English to anyone and might have to uh, mm-hmm. um, look at English documents and so forth. So it, it's challenging for foreigners to enter the market here. Um, which I'm not complaining about. That's why we exist, but that's that's mm-hmm. how it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's a few things that you know, a few themes that we touched on. Number one, that there's very little inflation in the in the property prices um, in Japan, and so people don't usually invest or cannot invest for capital growth, right? That's the first theme. The second one is that. The that there's no real English speaking or you know, or real realtors who want to work with foreigners. That's another thing. The third one is that people are actually pretty honest, and so it's a very transparent landscape right. in terms of the deals. So, but but I assume most of the documentation is in Japanese, right? It's not in English. Yes, that's correct. So aside from the. Um... If you work, for example, like somebody like us with a buyer's agent or a portfolio manager or a proxy, we call ourselves. Yep. Um, so you will give us authority to um, review and sign documents on your behalf, mm-hmm. uh, like a limited power of attorney document that only applies mm-hmm. to uh, specific properties or to general property-related matters. And then yep. every the entire transaction and the entire management process and if and when you want to exit and sell, that's all going to be done completely in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, for the ownership registration and the transfer, which has to be submitted to the Legal Affairs Bureau, to the government office that handles that, um, there's going to be two or three pages that are actually going to be in English that you're going to sign. But mm-hmm. other than that, the, the, the stacks and stacks of papers, the purchase contracts, the property specs, everything's completely in Japanese. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, people get to, and, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that later, uh, but to keep it at the high level, you know, the, the, the landscape and then the transparency and then the prices you said, again, it's like being in central New York or central LA or San Francisco, the big cities, you know, in the middle, it's uh, much more expensive. And I've heard some crazy stories about, you know, apartments in Tokyo going for several million dollars uh, in yeah. any growing so city in the world. Central Tokyo, central Osaka, um, barring perhaps the last year, because Corona has changed things a little bit. Yep. Uh, but central Tokyo, central Osaka, and Niseko, which is a hugely popular uh, international ski resort up in Hokkaido. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few other really luxurious uh, spots are very similar mm-hmm. to what you'd expect from other places. But in other parts of the country, you can buy you know, studio units for as low as 20, 30,000 US. So it's, mm-hmm. there's a huge gap between... Um, those um, super hot, super popular areas in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm curious about one thing. Um, how do the Japanese you know, country demographics, and I know they are special as well because there's a much more older population. Yeah. Uh, there are much, much, much fewer families having children. And then there's also a mass exodus towards the cities, uh, right? How do these factors affect the availability of what kind of properties are available in Japan and what is the makeup overall? Well, the availability is definitely there even in the places that are emptying out. The The trick is um, the due diligence that you need to do is first and foremost about the location. So yep. what happens in Japan is it is 
the world's uh, most rapidly aging uh, population. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, they don't have too many babies. Um, so that affects your due diligence um, and your property selection on a few levels. So firstly, because the population in the smaller villages and the smaller townships, the more remote areas is slowly dying out, what this does is it, um, as you mentioned, it, it creates a it creates a population increase actually in the bigger cities because people, okay. especially younger people, when they uh, graduate for school, they want to go to university. They want to start a family. They'd always want to move away from the little country uh, town where they were born. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the larger cities are actually, most of them are actually um, increasing in population as those tinier uh, places conglomerate into those uh, bigger cities. And that's, that's the trend that unless anything happens with the population and the trend becomes reversed, that probably is going to continue at least for the next few decades. Mm-hmm. And hopefully by then they'll enact um, some policies, knock on wood, that might reverse. Maybe they will allow more um, immigration or they might somehow um, convince families to have more children, increase the birth rate. But if they don't, for the next 20, 30 years, we're probably going to see the same thing. We're going to see the bigger cities growing in population and the smaller townships dying out. So when you're shopping around for properties, the first thing that you want to look at is, is that location's fundamentals. Is the population going up or going down? Um, does the um, same as you would in other countries, does the um, yep. the town or the city have a, is it like a one-trick pony? Does it have a single industry or a, mm-hmm. a single main employer? Or is it a little bit more robust? And mm-hmm. that usually goes in hand in hand with population stability as well. Mm-hmm. And the second factor that this affects is um, your selection of the property itself, the property profile. So because people are not having uh, as many children here, um, and they're not getting married as often. And if they do get married, they're going to be, uh, in most cases, a childless couple or maybe a couple with a single child. Mm-hmm. So it's easiest to populate smaller properties. So family size properties can stand vacant for a while until you actually find a family that's going to move in there. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing because once you do get a family, they, they tend to stay a lot longer than singles or couples. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to quickly populate a property and always have access to the uh, largest possible tenant base, then you're probably going to go again for the cash cow. So the smaller studio units, uh, one bedroom, maybe two bedroom, if it's a couple with a baby kind of thing. Yeah, uh, yep. those will always be easy to populate. Mm-hmm. So, so the the buyers, the renters, are mostly in the younger demographic. If you're if you're if you're going to invest in Japan, no, it will most likely no, be wish, no. Um, okay. There's so many old people here. Um, you're very likely to. There's at least 50, 60 percent chance you're going to have an elderly tenant. Um, okay. But it's go, it's going to be a single elderly tenant again. They don't get mm-hmm. um, married. They just, unfortunately, it's sad, but they just um, get old and uh, die on their own. Sometimes in the property. So if we mention that we don't have deadbeats and we don't have um, problem tenants in the sense that they, you know they might run a drug lab or or get the entire yeah. family to squat in. So that doesn't happen here, but you could have a tenant die in the property, for example, just of old age. Mm-hmm. Um, the family units are not as uh, tightly knit as they used to be. And there's a lot of old people who just live alone and die alone. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. And so for most investors that you work with or that you've seen um, come to Japan, what kind of properties are they buying? 
That really depends on the investors. Yep. So I'd say the vast majority of the maybe 65, 70% of our customers would be going for those older, smaller unit types. Older and, and smaller. Okay. So units. older as in? Um, used to be 1980, 80-something. Uh, these days, there's new legislation that, um, that puts more obligations on owners of older buildings to renovate them and therefore increase the building fees. So okay. these days, we recommend to our customers not to go for anything older than 1990. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me. And um, they're going to be condo units just because... Um, Firstly, that's where most people prefer to live. Secondly, those are smaller in footprint and therefore they uh, cater more to the singles or couples as opposed to family homes. And thirdly, because um, houses in Japan for, for various reasons, some earthquake resistance and also weather and also um, just tradition, houses in Japan tend to be uh, built from very light, not durable, not very durable materials. Mm-hmm. So if you're buying a house, it's not going to be a brick or concrete. It's going to be a wood or a steel-framed wood. Mm-hmm. And those require a lot more maintenance. So when they hit uh, 25, 30 years of age, you're putting in a good few thousand bucks to uh, renovate and maintain them every year. So people tend to prefer mostly the stability that comes with condo units where you're just in charge of the interior and everything uh, structural is going to be paid by the monthly condo fees that you pay as an owner. Mm-hmm. And that's also where most of your tenants uh, prefer to live. So our customers mainly go, um, if they're looking for the highest potential um, percentage yield cash flow, they would go for individual units in various locations in co-owned blocks. So they would own one unit and everybody else in the building would own another unit or a few units. And then they have owner union, uh, building management company and so forth. Hmm. Um, those that do want to try and capitalize on other trends. So for example, people that think that um, land value might go up or people that want to get a bit more creative and maybe do short-term rentals in the future. Um, they might buy a small building of these units. So they buy um, mm-hmm. usually something up to three floors um, because beyond that, I mean, four and five floors, you can still have a building without an elevator, but then the fourth and fifth floor are harder to populate because there's a lot of stairs. Mm-hmm. And if the building is six floors plus, you have to have an elevator and that increases maintenance. So the sweet spot tends to be um, two to three floor buildings with something like four to 10 or 15 units. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, I mean, we do have a few customers who buy houses because they're thinking that in the future they might want to use them for their own purposes. Mm. Um, some of them buy land for development, some of them buy solar farms, uh, parking lots, a bit of commercial property or mixed property. So there might be a building with a couple of shops on the ground floor or there might be a building um that's designed in such a way that you can rent out the units as uh, offices or residential uh, properties. So a bit of a mix, but I'd say 65 to 70% of them would be going for resident, small residential units. Mm-hmm. And so let's, uh, since you, uh, I'm glad you bring this up. Let's talk about the commercial uh, property sector. Now, what are the, you know, the overall trend there, the overall demographics there? Um, well, there's the macro level and the practical level yep. for people like you and me, right? So macro, if you're looking yep. at trends, um, 
very large office buildings and before uh, COVID hit, hotels uh, were quite popular as commercial properties. Mm-hmm. Um, logistics properties. So with the increase in e-commerce, it's become a very hot uh, spot, actually mm-hmm. a bit too hot for comfort now. So warehouses and shipping facilities that are um, relatively close to big city centers. So like on the outskirts of a big city. Yep. Um, data centers. But those require very specific knowledge to run and operate. So it's not something that everything that I've mentioned so far, it's not something that you and me or most of our clients will be active in that space. When our clients do go for commercial properties, it's going to be um, shops, small office building like tier B, tier C office buildings, um, Mm -hmm. maybe small uh, kind of neighborhood retail centers like a, a small little shopping center. Yep. Uh, bars, restaurants, nursing homes. If you got a good operator in place, a nursing home is always a good investment in Japan with just so many old people. Hmm. Um, what else have we seen? Sometimes some um, after-hours schools, like English schools or Japanese schools for students. Uh, student accommodation, it's not really commercial, but um, somewhere between residential and commercial, I suppose. Those are yep. all pretty popular. Yep. Interesting. So uh, given, and to put that back into the macro perspective, given the demographics of Japan that we discussed earlier, um, and again, the economy is not, I think, uh, growing that fast in Japan for yeah. the last several years. Um, but a few sectors, like you said, you know, nursing homes and e-commerce, they are growing. But, but still, can you give us some more, some more, you know, general knowledge about how the Japanese economy growth and other demographics affect what kind of commercial property is going out of fashion and what is coming back in fashion? Um, Well, we probably had better look at that pre-COVID and post-COVID because that has changed a few things in the market. Um, So if you look at everything, uh, if we look at the general scene up to 2020, um, Uh, hospitality was blowing up. So with the Olympics, uh, the Olympics was Mm -hmm. announced and then the Osaka World Expo and Japan's tourism numbers were going through the roof. Um, A lot of it because um, that emergence of the middle class in China, which is just next door, um, saw hordes of Chinese tourists coming here every year by Mm ever-increasing numbers. and Japan was doing its best and it was doing a good job to draw more and more tourists from around the world. So hospitality properties were going crazy mm-hmm. to the point where um, uh, Airbnb and guest houses were becoming increasingly popular to a level that the government and the hotel lobby both um, freaked out a little bit and put in some restrictions on how people can be running uh, short-term stay properties. Mm-hmm. But even those uh, places out in the countryside, like uh, onsen hot spring resorts, ski resorts, um, small hotels from business hotels, which are usually two and a half or three stars, and all the way up to five-star hotels. So that was a very, very uh, attractive market. And that, of course, completely died as soon as COVID hit. So there's no tourists whatsoever now. Um, a lot of um, development is now standing empty or selling at distressed prices. And that's probably going to get a little bit worse this year, or that's what the most of the people project is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, share houses, same sort of story. So they were becoming increasingly popular before COVID, uh, especially for younger people who wanted to get more social or have been living overseas for a while and wanted uh, yep. to experience the same sort of environment here 
for students. Um, but again, as COVID hit, um, nobody wants to live with strangers anymore, right? So that, that sort of completely yep. died out as well. Um, shared offices, another trend that was very popular pre-COVID. And now it hasn't died, but it's changed a little bit. So instead of shared... Like co-working spaces, you mean? Like co-working spaces? Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. All right. So it hasn't completely died, but it has changed a little bit. They've now gone from shared offices to flex spaces where people can uh, rent and then change their food because a lot of businesses um, have been hit by COVID, probably not as hard as in other countries because the, the government here has been quite generous with the compensations and grants and support. But obviously companies have been resizing. Some of them have been going out of business. Some of them have had to relocate. Uh, they sent a lot of people to work from home um, so the shared office market has wobbled a little bit. The general normal office market has also seen rents slightly decreasing or stagnating, but it hasn't taken a huge hit. Um, Japanese companies overall don't tend to fire people. There mm-hmm. used to be, um, the concept here used to be a, once you're employed by a big company, it's a lifelong contract until the day you die kind of thing. You have to do something really messed up to get fired in Japan. Um, if they really don't like the way you perform, they'll just um, relegate you to some small corner office and meaningless job, but they're not going to fire you. Hmm. So that's not as popular as it used to be. There are now um, con- more contract workers and more project workers than there used to be, but still they don't fire people here um, as much. So the office uh, market has changed a little bit with covid because people went to work from home, uh, some companies downsized or they moved to more suburban areas because there's not as much as a need uh, to be that close to city centers to accessibility anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, residential has done very, very well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's always, I mean, the case, residential tends to be uh, the more stable of the sectors. So whenever crisis hits, residential is the, the sector that does very, very well. And in Japan, again, because people are not being fired, um, salaries are generally not being reduced. Um, so there's not going to be um, mass mm. evictions or foreclosures or mortgages and that sort of thing. So residential has been doing very well. It's actually one of the only sectors that's gone up this year. Hmm. Uh, retail and, has... And why, do you think, why do you think that oh, happened? Why, why, did, why do you think it went up? Uh, just because people were allocating funds to residential investments, whereas they were thinking about maybe getting a bit more interested in hospitality. Every, every, all of the sectors that I've mentioned that have uh, yep. been hit hard, investors that were eyeing that space have just moved to residential, which is nice and safe and stable. Okay, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, so it's not because of the Japanese, uh, that internal, but it's more like an external view. If I'm going to invest... I'm going to invest in residential, but not that something has happened within Japan that makes them make that make people, uh, you know, like like more people moving into new properties or something. That's not what happened. No, the locations and the the locations and profiles of the properties that people go for have changed a little bit because again, some people have been alloc- uh, rele- relegated yep. to work from home these days. Mm-hmm. So there's more interest, and that's a trend that's been going on for a while, but it just accelerated uh, with COVID. So more people are looking okay. at secondary cities, satellite cities, um, properties mm-hmm. with a bigger footprint that actually allow for a home office. Um, in the last two or three mm-hmm. decades, the, the trend has been actually shrinking living spaces, like the, the families were becoming more and more granular, less and less children. 
nobody living with their elderly parents anymore. So the, the flats, especially in the bigger cities, were getting smaller and smaller. Hmm. And now suddenly, when they suddenly started sending people to work from home, um, people suddenly need the bigger space. And to find that, they need to go more suburban. They need to move to perhaps another city and not as popular yep. central Tokyo, maybe somewhere that's like an hour away, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the market changed a little bit, but still residential is the most popular. Um, retail has been suffering even before COVID. So again, more and more e-commerce means that people were shopping less in physical brick and mortar stores. Mm-hmm. So they've suffered, um, but they've they've actually started already to repurpose the retail centers in light of this trend before COVID hit. So shopping center owners were focusing more on essentials, stuff that you don't buy online. So supermarkets were doing well. Um, yeah, uh, consumables, certain of, um, certain office supplies where you actually have to go and physically shop for stuff that you can get online. So they have been repurposing some of the uh, major shopping centers for a while. And then when COVID hit, it was already in the midst of a trend away from brick and mortar and towards e-commerce. Um, so that hasn't changed drastically. Um, luxury high-end um, central stores in very luxurious areas are still surviving, resilient. I mean, rents haven't gone up significantly, but people are still, I mean, people are not buying a Louis Vuitton or a Rolex uh, online. They're going to the retail, to the luxury retail shops for yep. that. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest is probably accentuated. So again, same sort of thing. With COVID, it just increased the e-commerce trend, right? So everything associated with e-commerce, which is, again, the logistics properties, the data centers, uh, the rollout of 5G is going to be happening soon. So that all mm-hmm. just further increased um, the interest in data centers and logistics properties. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about it. I think nursing homes, like we mentioned, is not going to change much. Yep. There's still plenty of old people, so that hasn't changed with COVID at all. Um, I mean... Their operations change a little bit. They now have to compensate workers for the danger of working in a potentially closed space with a lot of people, and they need to uh, take more virus prevention methods to implement more of that, which they haven't done before. So they tend to be a little bit less profitable than before because of this overhead, but it's still a very popular asset class. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about the financing aspect, right? And the pricing of different properties and, uh, you know, the budgetary aspect of this. Um, So first, let's get over the lending stuff. Like, are mortgages a thing in Japan? Do people usually take mortgages? How big is the market for that? Uh, If you're Japanese, you can definitely get a mortgage. If you're a foreign investor, not so much. So there Mm -hmm. are two or three lenders um, that can cater to uh, non-resident investors. Mm -hmm. But you would have to set up a company for them to lend to you. Mm. So it only becomes uh, worth your while from a certain level, right? Because you're going to be paying two or 3,000 bucks to set up the company, then another two or 3,000 bucks every year for accounting and minimum corporate tax, even if you're not making any money. Is that dollars? Dollars, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. So if you take into account, uh, let's say somewhere between two to 4,000 bucks a year uh, just for upkeep of the corporate structure, then you have to make sure that you're getting enough income to make that make sense kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so probably not worth it unless you're going to be purchasing properties of say six, seven, eight hundred thousand bucks. And then the terms for these loans for non-resident investors are also not as attractive for, as they are for Japanese. So if a Japanese company or a Japanese person would be paying somewhere between one and a half to three percent, and foreign investors will be paying three to four percent. And you're only mm, going to get okay. 60, 60 to 70% uh, LTV. So you will have to put down 30, 40% uh, in cash. Yep. And at the moment, because of COVID, pre-COVID, those lenders were looking at um, most major cities. But since COVID hit, they're only looking at central Tokyo. They wouldn't lend for anywhere else. To non-residents. Mm. This is all to non-residents. Um, and they will only allow you to lease the property up with standard long-term residential leases. So you can't buy commercial, you can't do short-term stay, Airbnb, um, you can't really get creative with them. And some of them will actually enforce that by designating their own property managers that you have to work with for the lifetime of the loan just to keep an eye on you to make sure that you're not getting creative with the property. So Hmm. bottom line, the loan terms for non-residents is not that attractive. It's a little bit more flexible if you're... um, from China or Taiwan or Hong Kong. There are a few, uh, Bank of China, uh, Star Bank, which is a Taiwanese bank that operates in Tokyo, and uh, Oryx, which is a Hong Kong, um, it's a large company in Hong Kong, but they also do loans. Mm. And so if you've got citizenship or residency in one of those countries, there are a few more options open to you, but um, US, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the customers that usually work with us, the English speaking countries or um, European, uh, you know, Italy, France, and so forth, they very difficult for them to get loans in attractive terms. I see. Interesting. Um, so it's hard to finance in Japan, um, even if you do find a, a good property. And so let's talk about the the uh, the, uh, the rent aspect and how much cash flow we're really talking about for different kinds of properties. Yep. Um, and let's focus specifically on the residential sector all right um let's say in you know tokyo what are rents like what are rents typically like that's the first question that's more general and then we can go into details okay well tokyo i would put aside from the rest of the country Uh, most of our customers haven't been active in tokyo aside from the last year i mean uh, when covid hit tokyo and osaka did become a bit softer and more negotiable and uh, yields have slightly gone up and prices have slightly gone down. But mm-hmm. generally, 2020 aside, uh, 2020, 2021 aside, um, Tokyo and Osaka are probably not the best places to hit for property because the um, prices are much higher and the rent is higher, but not nearly as sharply. I mean, the graph of property prices goes up far more sharply than the uh, rental price graph. And that gap means mm-hmm. that the yields are very compressed in Tokyo and Osaka. Um, In other cities in Japan, um, let's say Nagoya, Kyoto, Sapporo, Fukuoka, uh, Kumamoto, some of the other attractive cities that people are usually active in, rent could go, depending on the property. So if you're renting, again, let's talk about the cash cows first. So smaller studio or one bedroom units um, would go from anywhere between... $250 a month to maybe $400, $500 a month, depending on location. Hmm. 
And this is again in outside of Tokyo, like uh, like in the suburbs, you said? Um, outside of Tokyo? No, outside of Tokyo is not suburbs. I mean, there are very big cities aside from Tokyo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep, so yep, okay. these are other cities. So Japan's seven biggest cities um, are I Tokyo, see. Yokohama, yep. Osaka, Nagoya, Sapporo, and Fukuoka. Mm-hmm. And there's also Kawasaki, which is very close to Tokyo. It's like 20 minutes out of Tokyo. There's Yokosuka, which is a little bit south of Tokyo. There's Kobe next to Osaka, um, Kumamoto. And these are all not small cities. I mean, Yokohama is uh, three point something million people. Um, mm. And Nagoya, Fukuoka are one and a half, two million each. Sapporo is also two million people. So they're big cities. Yeah. And just not as well known internationally. So in those cities, rents would vary. For the smaller, older studios and one-bedroom apartments, anywhere between two hundred and fifty to five hundred dollars usually. Mm-hmm. And then the bigger and more central you get, uh, sky's the limit. But those usually don't make such good investments. So um, our typical tenants usually pay uh, that price, somewhere between two fifty to five hundred bucks. And those properties mm-hmm. would cost those units. If you buy a single unit, would cost anywhere from, depending on the city and the location in the city, but anywhere from twenty twenty five thousand dollars to maybe sixty eighty thousand eighty thousand dollars. And if you're buying a small building with say four, six, or eight of these units, you're probably looking at somewhere between three hundred to six hundred six hundred fifty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so to put that into perspective, is that would you say the rent is um, fairly reasonable in that case? Like given the price of the property itself, um, the rents are more reasonable, or would you say it's more on the expensive side? Uh, the rents are very cheap, but so are the properties. So if you talk about yields, um, let's say we usually like to talk about net pre-tax. So let's say we're taking all of the purchase costs into account and all of the known management costs into account. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not we're not putting in, uh, let's say, annual taxes because that would vary depending on your personal income. And okay. we're not taking into account any unknowns like vacancies or maintenance and so forth. So net pre-tax... Um, in all of those cities that I've mentioned, aside from uh, Tokyo and Osaka, let's say, yep. um, your yields, annual yields could be anywhere between 5 to 8 maybe 9%, depending on location. Mm-hmm. So quite reasonable. Um, in Tokyo and Osaka, maybe 5 between 4 and 5 The last year, we've actually seen them go up to 6 6 and a half. But that's, again, a COVID thing. I think it's probably going to climb up again once that's done. Okay. And, and of course, people are not really... When people buy... When people sell these properties off, um, they're make, mainly making a loss because the property value wouldn't go up in... You know, go, go up enough compared to the... You know, whatever inflation there is in, in the Japanese market. There is no inflation in the Japanese market. There's it's no been inflation. Yeah. deflation for uh, two and a half decades. And now that inflation started, which is late 2012, um, it's been going up like one, one and a half percent on a, on a good year kind of thing. And now it's not going up at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that salaries don't go, don't go up. It means that rents don't go up. Um, but that's why property prices are so low in many places around the country. So again, we're putting Tokyo and Osaka aside. 
Um, in other places, property prices are still very affordable. Yep. And the other thing is um, the nature of the Japanese tenant is uh, that they're very docile and they avoid uh, what they consider to be conflict. And that works in the landlord's favor in case of a deflationary environment, because if you had a tenant, for example, who's moved into a property, say, 20 years ago, and that's not rare in Japan. I mean, it's quite common. They don't like to move around much. Once they found a place that they like, they'll try to stay there, similar to a job, as long as they can. So if yeah. someone's moved in, let's say, 20 years ago, and that was just after the, uh, the big uh, economy bubble burst here in the early 90s, they're still paying the rent that they paid when they signed up on the tenancy lease. And that mm -hmm. rent could be double than the average rent for a similar property these days because of the deflation that, that's occurred here since then. But they're never going to approach the landlord to ask for a discount or to renegotiate the rent. And even though if they look around, they know that they can rent a place for half the price, they just don't want to move out. They just want things to stay exactly the way they are. So when we, when we purchase a property, if the tenant's been there for a long time, we'll often see that the rent is a lot higher than the average rent would be. If and when that tenant moves out, we're not going to be able to get that rent again. Mm -hmm. So that can work in our favor. Yeah. Um, but they, they, people don't tend to be selling at a loss unless they've purchased in a really crappy location, which if they work with us, we would probably advise them uh, pre-purchase not to go for those locations. If they purchased in one of the, let's say, the list of cities that I was rattling off um, yeah. back there, those places haven't declined in value. Uh, I mean... Mm -hmm. Some of them are just up-and-coming places that have actually increased in value, like Fukuoka, for example, where I live, um, where a lot of our customers are active, has almost, uh, in that lower bracket that we're talking about, has almost doubled in price since we started, which is about 10 years ago. Um, mm. So it's been rising almost as sharply as Tokyo and Osaka. Um, so when people sell, let, let's say... Let's say that the value hasn't gone up at all. Let's say it's stayed yep. stagnant or it's even decreased, let's say, by 10, 15%. Um, but if your rental income in the five or six or seven years or 10 years that you've been holding the property was um, five or six or seven or 8% uh, annually, then you're still well in the green when you sell it. Hmm. Because you've, so let's like, say you've received yeah. just 5% every year for five years, that's already 25% of your investment back. So even if you're selling at a 10 or 15% loss, which is usually quite rare, um, you're still 10% over. Mm, I see. And uh, do people sell often in Japan? And what reasons do they usually sell for? Um. Our customers, and as far as I can tell, I mean, we don't service Japanese. No, I mean, Japanese, the Japanese people in general, the Japanese people who own properties, um, who are willing to sell. Do you mean investment properties? Um, yeah, residential properties, um, commercial properties, whatever, whatever it is, usually. Because you well, said there's like, there's not much inflation, there's not much deflation, there's steady cash flow. Once you have some cash flow coming in, and let, let's keep out, maybe let's keep out the commercial properties for a second and only focus on residential. Since yeah. it's a healthy cash flow and people don't leave, it's like you could sit there forever and you know just keep making the money, right? Um, as a as an owner, as a landlord, 
So what, to what point, reasons? To a point. I mean, as the building gets old, it requires more maintenance and it requires, um, and it becomes a little bit harder to get tenants because people, I mean, mm-hmm. there's always low income tenants that would have to live in an older building, but even they would have a limit. I mean, if the building is 40, 50 years old, it's getting harder and harder to find tenants yeah. and the monthly f- building fees will keep increasing as the building requires more maintenance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so at that point, usually the building management company and the owner union would start looking for um, developers to buy the place and tear it down and rebuild, or developers might contact them way ahead of that time um, to offer to make offers on those buildings. But if you're looking at an investor that's been holding, a, let's say, um, a unit in a relatively newer place, let's say 30, 40, uh, 20, 30-year-old place, the people that we buy for, uh, from, sorry. So when we, uh, yeah. when we look at what's available on the market and look for attractive properties to buy, the people that we buy from tend to be two classes, I'd say. So it's either real estate um, companies or real estate investors that do that for a living. So they might buy, renovate, um, kind of flip. I mean, flipping is not as popular in Japan as it is in other countries, but um, they would be specifically buying underpriced properties and then trying to sell them at market price. Or it's Mm -hmm. um, older people that might have lived through a few boom and bust cycles and therefore are more um, investment inclined. The younger and middle generation in Japan, let's say people anywhere from their 20s to 50s, um, don't tend to be investors. The Japanese psyche is more of a um, sit on your cash for a rainy day kind of thing. They don't tend to, um, Mm. they consider it risky to invest in anything beyond um, uh, the safest and most stable and lowest deal, like government bonds and uh, blue chip stocks maybe and that sort of thing. So the property, and that's Mainly because they've been burned quite badly um, in the again that same bubble that I mentioned in the 1990s. Yep. So yep, anybody yep, 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 yep. anybody who was growing up during that time and uh, remember mom or dad losing a, you know a bunch of money on a few property investments, they tend to be very wary. And the Japanese are generally very risk averse as a rule. So the people that we yeah. buy for are either those real estate companies or elderly investors. If they've been through a few boom and bust cycles, like let's say, for example, they remember the era post, uh, post-World post War II. And then they remember yep. how the economy went up and down a couple of times in the 90s crash, but then it went up. So they're not too phased by that. So they have been investing in properties. And there are a lot of them because, again, mm. it's, a, it's a very old country. Um, but yep. as they approach the age where they're starting to think about what to do with their properties and they ask their children, the children will, in most cases, just say, no, no, sell it and give me cash. We don't want to hold any kind of property whatsoever. Um, and that's yep. when they go on the market and uh, we end up capitalizing. But again, because there are quite a few older people here who have been investing. I mean, Japan's the world's uh, second biggest property market, and that includes investment, right? So it's second only to the USA. Um, Mm. It's a very active, very fluid market. Um, So there's never been a problem to to buy or sell property here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so let's now focus on on your business, right? Your services and... uh, who usually comes to you and how you serve them. So give us, give us a, you know, an, a, a high level pitch of who your customers usually tend to be. Um, well, they're all quite internationally minded as a rule. So it's usually 
um, people who are open to the idea of investing in a foreign country to begin with. Um, yep. So you could see, for example, when we started out, uh, again, this was almost a decade ago now. So when we started out, uh, that was just post the uh, global financial crisis of 2008, right? We started in uh, late 2011. And um, at that time, Europe and the USA, for example, um, because they suffered um, such a huge uh, downturn in property prices and, and the economy overall, there were plenty of good deals to be had in Europe and the USA. So we didn't, at that point in time, we didn't have too many customers from those areas. And they had plenty to go for in their own backyard. And our customers were mainly from um, Singapore, Australia, Hong Kong, um, places where the market is already very mature and properties are very expensive and yields are very hard to come by. And those kinds of people were already open-minded and looking for um, property deals overseas. Mm-hmm. And as the uh, world started to recover from the global financial crisis and property prices started to go up again in other places, we started to get more and more customers from the USA, from Canada, from the UK, uh, various countries in Europe, um, Thailand, Malaysia, New Zealand, all over the place. And generally speaking, they come in two groups. So the first group is everyone that I've mentioned so far. So the opportunistic investors who are internationally minded and looking for properties overseas um, in just attractive environments. And naturally, they'd be people that are attracted to a transparent and well-documented uh, property market. So the people who are looking to um, cut deals and you know black money under the table like they do in India or um, uh, people who are okay with uh, leasehold land as opposed to freehold land um, and are looking for the best possible deal that they can find uh, regardless of the circumstance, those people don't tend to come to Japan. Japan attracts people who are happy with um, slightly lower yields, slightly lower capital growth potential, but a very stable, reliable um, monthly paycheck in the bank kind of market. And the second mm-hmm. class of customers that we get are um, Japan affiliates, I guess you would call them. So people who have been to Japan in the past or have lived here in the past, they love the country, they love the culture, they feel very comfortable um, coming here and doing business with the Japanese specifically, right? So the first class are just looking for deals wherever they may be. And the second class just love Japan for any reason and they want to invest specifically in Japan. So let's focus more on the the first uh, class because that's, um, I think, I guess, more predictable Right. Um, when so, as you said, they are more internationally minded um, investors, and uh, they are looking for number one the transparency and some of the other factors you mentioned. Which other countries, um, given that in Japan you cannot capitalize on the property itself, it's usually more cash flow oriented. Which other countries? Does in a way Japan face competition from as a as a as a place for international real estate investments? Um, well, I'd probably look at that regionally. So if you look at Asia Pacific, for example, um, there's not much competition in the sense that Japan is the only place in Asia Pacific that doesn't have any restrictions on foreign buyers. So the land is all freehold. I mean, aside from like um, some farmland or culturally protected land for various reasons, but 99% of the market is freehold land. There's no extra taxes levied on foreign investors. They can buy uh, new or secondhand old properties. They can develop stuff that they can't do in any country in Asia Pacific aside from Japan. 
So not not much of a competition here. Um, compared to the rest of the world, I guess um, you can probably compare Japan to some of the uh, northern European countries as far as the stability and transparency of the market goes. So Germany, Switzerland, um, the UK is quite quite well established and transparent as well. Um, although in some cities in the UK, I think in London, for example, you can't actually own land. Everything's owned by the government, I think. Although I could be wrong about that. Um, France, I mean, places where the market is pretty documented and uh, transparent, but those places don't tend to be as affordable. So compared to a developed first world country, um, Japan does feature quite high yields and quite affordable properties. So capital growth is obviously a double-edged sword. I mean, when property prices goes up, go up, it's uh, good for people who already own properties, but it becomes a lot more difficult to enter the market, right? So from that aspect, um, Japan is actually not suffered by, by the fact that there's no huge capital growth here. Um, it's also quite comparable to the USA uh, in the sense that um, the USA does have more affordable properties if you get out of the bigger cities. Uh, but the tenant base, man, no offense, miles apart, right? Like if you're buying, um, if you're buying affordable, <laughs> cheap properties um, with low-income tenants in the states, um, I personally have only invested once in the states and never again. Right? Um, to to manage a property remotely, again, we're talking about foreign investors, yeah? To manage a property remotely and deal with U.S. Uh, property management companies and banks and insurance companies and the HOAs um, as a non-resident investor is a nightmare. And if you're buying cheap and affordable and you want to get high yield, you're buying in basically uh, ghettos or places with very serious payment issues and very serious tenant issues. And there's just none of that here. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and what about the more emerging economies? Um, like you said, the African continent or Latin America and, you know, South Asia. South Asia, we you know, already mentioned, it's kind of like, uh, you know, pretty hard. It's not very transparent. I know, I know being from India, how, uh, how opaque the industry can be here for real estate investments. Yeah, so same story in Africa and South America, right? Um, aside from a few, look, I, I'm not, I'm not a big expert in on Africa and South America, to be honest. Uh, all I yep. heard is uh, yep. stories from other people and what they've been going through here. But again, it's a market that um, appeals to the right kind of person, right? Um, there are people that are yep. very active and are very happy to be investing in emerging markets, and they, it's like investing in startups. You know, you spread your funds over a number of places, and. Um, You've got high risk, but when one of them works, it can also yield very high rewards. So not really comparable. I think people don't come here with that sort of attitude in mind. Yep. It, it seems like, it sounds like, uh, would most of your customers tend to the second category where they just love Japan or most of them do you think would be more, uh, just opportunities like uh, just for the opportunity? Um, when we started, most of them were, uh, more of the opportunistic type. Um, mm -hmm. like I said, because at that time people were just looking for wherever they could find any, any kind of good deal. Um, as I suppose, as the world started to recover from the GFC and as probably as we matured as a company and we started to uh, become easier to um, spot for people who are, because there are a lot of people who love Japan, but 
recognize that they just simply can't work with professionals here because, again, of the language and cultural gap. Not because they don't want to, but because the Japanese professionals don't want to work with them. So as soon as we were established as a solution, and we're one of the only companies in Japan that actually covers the entire country at all levels, um, so from the cheapest to the end, including management, including sales, so like a one-stop shop. As soon as we were um, becoming more established and more known in that way, then we started hearing a lot more from the people who really love Japan, but were just waiting for some way to get into the country. Um, so these days, I'd say probably 50-50. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so uh, let's talk about your um, services. Like you said, it's a one-stop shop. Uh, what is the journey of a new investor when they go through your, you know, when they engage with you and uh, what is it, what is it like? Uh, well, the first step is we would try to understand their mindset and what exactly they're looking for and whether their expectations are realistic, right? So if somebody hmm. comes to us, it doesn't happen much, but if somebody comes to us and says, um, I'm looking for, you know, eight, nine, 10% in central Tokyo, we're just going to have, to say that that's not going to happen, it's not possible. Um, or if somebody comes and says um, that they want to purchase and they want to finance 80% of the purchase and they want to, it's just stuff that we can do, we'll try to tell them in advance. Yeah. Once yeah. we've aligned our expectations and we sometimes there's a bit of education involved on our part, we need to tell them what's feasible or not feasible in Japan overall, which locations are more or less attractive, um, uh, whether it's, you know, some people have a dream of, um, owning and running a, a guest house or Airbnb property remotely, um, even though they're not mm-hmm. living here, that's not always an option. It's quite difficult to do unless you're in the city, but not in the countryside. Yep. So once we've aligned expectations, um, they know what they want and we, and we let them know what they can expect. Then they would give us um, that limited power of attorney document, which enables us to co- start contacting um, agents and sellers and conduct due diligence and um, represent them here in their absence. And at that point, if it's their first purchase with us, they'll also need to pay our fee estimate in advance. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we would credit or debit them post-settlement based on whatever they ended up. So we first charge according to their estimated purchase budget and then post-settlement will credit or debit them. After the first mm-hmm. deal that we've done with them, we can just charge them on settlement. But for the first one, we have to charge them in advance, um, mainly because, um, again, because of this reluctance of Japanese professionals to work with um, to work with foreigners. One of the reasons for that is that um, foreigners here have an image um, of being tire kickers, right? Like a lot of them um, contact local real estate companies and they ask a bunch of questions about a bunch of properties and they look like they're just about to move forward and they submit an application, but actually they've been doing that with 10 or 20 properties and they end up just purchasing the one and then they never even reply to the first uh, 15 or 19 agents that they contacted. And that's, Doable in other countries, it's not doable here. Here, the whole culture is very uh, manners and proper proper way of doing things oriented. So if you do that here, if we do that here as a buyer's agent, then that realtor that we uh, contacted will never work with us again. And in a market where we're already limited in the number of people that will agree to work with us, um, we have to really maintain those relationships. So for that reason, we for the first purchase, we charge in advance. And then again, mm. credit or debit post-settlement, depending on the actual purchase price. 
Um, and that fee will cover people even if they end up doing due diligence and submitting offers and looking into a uh, hundred properties until they find the one that they want and settle on that. We're not going to charge them anything extra. And then after settlement, um, so at the time of the application, um, the application is not legally committing. So we will not be getting the due diligence information like the tenant history, the building renovation history, the status of the uh, reserved funds, if it's a co-owned building. All of that is only going to be available post-purchase. So uh, once we pinpoint a few properties that we're interested in, we'll ask the client to prioritize them for us and tell us how much he would like to offer for the one that he wants the most. We'll make an offer on that one. Assuming the offer was accepted or maybe a counter offer was made and a few rounds of that, once the offer has been accepted and approved, we'll start getting the due diligence info. We'll look into uh, the history of the property, the history of the tenant. We would make recommendations um, to the customer whether we think it's a good idea to green light the deal or if we think there's a high, slightly higher than comfort risk level for any reason, we might advise them to maybe amend the offer to a lower price to cover for that risk or to let it go altogether and look at another property. Um, but assuming we've looked at a few of those, we found the one that we want to proceed with, um, we would sign a purchase contract on their behalf, at which point they'll need to pay 10% um, as a deposit. And mm -hmm. then... If they're in the country two or three weeks later, if they're out of the country and there's a lot of international uh, documents that need to be notarized and, and sent back and forth, then probably four to five weeks later, um, everything will be done. They'll pay the rest of the money and the uh, judicial scrivener, the property lawyer, will transfer the uh, ownership over to them. And then we would put in a property manager that we work with in that particular city in place for them. And... Assuming there's nothing that needs attention, they'll probably just hear from us with an annual uh, income and expenses statement. And then whenever they want to transfer funds back home, they just let us know and we do that for them. Mm, I see. And when a property and so becomes vacant, yeah. there's obviously um, decisions to be made. Um, what sort of uh, rental terms to advertise for, what kind of renovation repairs need to be done. Uh, if something breaks in the property, um, there might be a few options that they'll need to approve if they want to go for the pricier one or not, but um, just standard property management stuff. I see. So it's like most people who do engage with you, you not only help with the uh, the purchase of the property, but you're more like their long-term partner. Once they sign up, they're long-term bound with you for you know managing the property and other things in future as well. We have to be, yeah, we have to be, yeah. unless they're uh, unless they're active in very specific locations that can cater to foreigners, then we have to be involved all the way, which is why it's a very good idea for us to uh, make sure that everything's understood and clear from the get-go, because um, if they end up going for properties that we recommended against, we are the ones who are going to have to be dealing with it when they can't find tenants or when everything uh, everything goes mm -hmm. south, so yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so let's let's zoom in on one thing you mentioned, the negotiation side where, you know, you make an offer and then there's a counter offer. Because uh, I think given the, you know, that Japanese culture is counterintuitive or interesting, what is, uh, is that like just any other negotiation in the real estate market in like America or anywhere else? Or are there some special characteristics of that negotiation process? 
Um, it's not overly aggressive like it is in some Western countries. So you don't go super lowball and offer half the price. Um, that would be offensive mm-hmm. to them. They wouldn't accept any further offers from you. Okay. Um, you can go a little bit uh, deeper on the negotiation if the property is vacant, because most of these properties are strictly investment properties, just in the sense that um, the people who can afford to buy them would never want to live in them and vice versa. The people who live in them would never be able to afford to buy them. So properties that are classed as investment properties because they're older, smaller units um, tend to be priced uh, strictly based on the rental income that they generate or can generate. So if the property is vacant, we do have a bit more negotiation room because it's not actually generating any income at the moment. But otherwise, um, depending on location, I'd say you could come in at an offer of maybe 10, 15%. But if it's a very popular location, um, the the seller is going to refuse it because they are going to get what they're asking for very soon. Hmm. And and, uh, when competing for deals, because... Um, what is the competition usually like for a property? Given that, you know, like you mentioned, um, a lot of places, if you keep, if you keep, uh, keep uh, giving them inquiries about like, hey, I want to buy this property, and then you don't, they'll stop working with you, uh, in a sense, what is the competition like for a given deal? Um Attractive deals um, usually get snatched very quickly, especially in the uh, lower priced market. So the ones that are under a hundred thousand bucks would usually be under offer within a day or maybe a week from listing if they're attractive, if they're priced attractively and the yield is reasonable and the location is good, they'd usually be spoken for very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's And it's usually first come first serve. So if we submit an offer and then somebody comes in even with a lower offer than the um, the seller and the seller's agent would usually let us know that a lower offer has come in and give us a chance to increase our offer price. Mm-hmm. Um, so as long as you get your foot in the door quick, um, the competition is quite easy to deal with. It's not going to be, there's no bidding wars or auctions or anything of that sort. Mm, I see. But so, so, so the key is to find a deal quickly um as soon as it comes on the market um yes so that's why we like our customers to i mean we can send them a few research samples and show them what's been available two or three weeks ago um, mm-hmm. but it's quite quite often not going to be relevant anymore by the time they actually engage our services so from the moment they've given us permission to act on their behalf we'll ask them we might send them a like a WhatsApp or a text message or say, this one just came in. I'm sending you an email right now. Have a quick look and let me know if you want to apply because otherwise it might be gone. And the cheaper the cheaper the properties are, the more likely that is to happen. So if you're looking at um, property again, that's under $100,000, um, you do want to move very quickly on it, yeah. And I mean, mm-hmm. look, we, we've worked with realtors in most of the uh, cities around Japan um, on quite a few deals. So we do get their... Um, listings before they actually start putting them on the MLS websites and so forth. So they'll first send out Mm -hmm. the uh, new properties that they've got to the list of investors that they've already worked with. Okay. So we do have a few extra days before the, um, before people start jumping on it like crazy, but even within those investors listed the email, there are still investors that might jump on it before, um, before we do. So yeah, quick action is uh, definitely a must here. It's a very, very, um, fast and liquid and active market, uh, especially at the lower price levels. I see. Yeah, that gives a lot of context um, because, you know, there's so many things that are different about the market. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, what is the biggest challenge? And we're just, you know, wrapping up the conversation. What is the biggest, what are the biggest challenges for your company um, so far? Um, biggest challenges, let's see. Um, finding bilingual staff is a challenge in Japan. It's not easy, um, especially ones that uh, stick with you for a long time. And we've also, um, to be honest, we haven't um, factored in for growth um, as early as we should have. So we've been struggling uh, for the last two or three years. We've been struggling with, um, I mean, it, it's growth pains. It's a good, it's a good situation to be in, but um, we need to get more automated and systemized. But that's us internally. I mean, it's not... Um, yeah. Yep. It's, a, it's a good situation to be in, but we'd like to provide better service to our clients. So we need to get more automated and more systemized. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that. Um, and what are the biggest things that you need to figure out looking forward, except for COVID related problems? Um, new areas to access, I suppose. I mean, um We've been more active in holiday homes and sectors that we haven't initially been dealing with. We've been getting more and more inquiries about hotels, especially now that it's a distressed market. Um, so we need to, we just need to evaluate which of these areas we want to be more active in because each of them will require um, our preparedness in advance. So it's it's uh, yeah. easy to um, to give into the shiny object syndrome and just say, okay, let's sell this and this and that and go high end and go low end and let's sell to Japanese customers for properties overseas. I mean, we've got all these ideas and projects that we might be able to uh, pull off down the track, but we just need to pace ourselves. And um, I'm not going to say stay in our lane, but just make it, make sure that we're really prepared before we switch lanes again. So we've already done two or three um, we've added two or three services to our portfolio that we haven't had when we started. And we, we like to expand at that sort of nice and steady and careful pace. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Ziv, for sharing your thoughts. I learned a lot. And this time I was actually at a loss for words for questions because I'm, I'm totally not an expert in the industry. And I'm so not an expert that I couldn't even you know come up with good questions to ask you did very well made perfect question (laughs) i enjoyed it a lot i hope your listeners will as well thank you so much pleasure So there you have it, my conversation with Aman Agarwal, host of the Eccentric CEO podcast. Hope you enjoyed that chat or the video. And speaking of video, this is probably a good time to remind you that our other sponsor is Alex Watanabe of Snaps.talk. Alex provides excellent and really affordable photography and videography services in Tokyo, starting at only 3,000 Japanese yen, so less than 30 bucks. You can check out his work on this episode's show notes. We'll link to his profiles, his email address, and the gallery of awesome photos that he's done for us at our last seminar in Tokyo. 
If you like what you see, don't be shy. Get in touch with Alex on snaps.talk. That's T-O-K at gmail.com. Uh, or via his Instagram account, Tokyo Night Owl is what he's called there. And if you've got a business or project that you'd like to promote to English speakers who are either based in Japan or have some affiliation to Japan, feel free to reach out to us and ask about our sponsorship programs. They're a lot cheaper than you think, and they're guaranteed to get you the exposure that you need. So that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do let us know what you thought about it in the comment section of wherever you might have found it. Or if you found it on the iTunes store, subscribe, of course, if you're not already subscribed. And we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a short review or at least click on one of those stars and give us a star rating. Five would be great, but we'll take low ratings if that's your honest opinion. Just help us share the love with a rating or a review or simply by sharing this podcast with your networks or anyone that you think might find the content valuable. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoshiku. Yoshiku.